thank you all for coming back uh, after last week when we started on Philippians. I know it was a little bit of a different way to, to start into it because I gave you a lot of history and, and we talked a little bit about the, the way the, the chapter was structured and the people he was talking to. We talked a little bit about Paul's situation, so it was kind of a different, different way to go about beginning, but it was, it was the beginning, so we had to start somewhere. And so today we're going to go a little bit more into the, in, starting into the chapter. And uh, we're going to, last week, we, one of the things I brought out, and, and we're really going to see it today, is I talked about the difference between joy and happiness. Remember, they're not the same thing. We can pursue happiness in many ways. Uh, there's, I could give you a list. Y'all could come up with it, double my list. But some of the things I thought of was fame. People seek happiness there. Fortune, materialism, if I buy enough stuff. Uh, power, some people find power. There's power in my... Self-esteem. Some people want to feel good about themselves. But lust is another one. People find happiness in lust. They find happiness in entertainment. And they find happiness in escape. You name it. Everybody in this room could probably come up with more things. The problem is that even when you do catch up to it, whatever it is, whatever it may be in your brain, whatever you're thinking of as happiness, when you finally catch up to happiness, you cannot capture that emotion forever. Just can't. You I used the example last week of a steak, and, and it, it, that steak is awesome while you're eating it. But later on, you're like, oh, I ate too much. And the next morning, you're hungry again. It could be, it could be the most expensive A5 Wagyu beef. I'm talking like a, you know, a $150 steak, which I've never had one of those. I want to. Haven't done it yet. But that, I'm still going to be hungry the next morning. It just doesn't matter how good the steak was. And you can't capture that emotion forever. It's a vapor. It is a vapor. And it disappears immediately, and you have to start the pursuit again. But joy, on the other hand, is something completely different. Joy is something that can be present at all times. If you have real joy, then it will be with you even when the going gets tough and the going gets rough. You will have joy with you even then. It will be with you even when your circumstances are sad and your heart is breaking. Joy will still be present. It sounds weird to say that. You can be joyful at a funeral. That, that's, that sounds like a crazy statement, doesn't it? But when we have the joy that is given, and we're going we're gonna to really dig into it in the next couple of weeks. When we have that kind of a joy that, the, that Paul is talking about here at the beginning of Philippians, it will be with you at the graveside of the person you love the most. It will still be present. And so this morning we're going to go through, or begin to go through at least, what Paul says here is the source of his joy. I'm going to go ahead and give you a, like, open, you know, tell you the, the spoiler, spoiler alert. It's God. <laughs> But, but he's going to bring it to us in, a, in a number of ways. We're going to find five different ways that Paul finds joy in God. And so it's, a, it's, it's, it's interesting because we'll, we'll see all this in our own lives. Every single person in this room, we can all find the same sources of joy. So let's look at uh, Philippians chapter 1, if you've got your Bible. Verses 1 and 2, it's the salutation. It's, uh, it's, Paul begins most of his books in a similar fashion. It tells that Paul is with Timothy and they are sending this letter to the Philippians. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. So we know that Paul and Timothy are together, they just told us. Paul and Timothy are together when they're writing this. 
Paul trusted Timothy. It's a, there's an awesome study, and, and maybe I'll do it one day, but there's an awesome study about the relationship of those two men and, and, and Timothy really looking up to Paul as, a, as a sort of a father in Christ and, and Paul looking at Timothy as a son in Christ. What a wonderful, uh, they were so equally uh, equally uh, yoked together in their ministry. It was a wonderful ministry. And Paul trusted Timothy greatly. And, and he really, he, he, he gave a lot of his authority and, and he, he, he trusted him so much to do things on his behalf. The salutation also tells us who the message was written to. We, we y'all already knew that one as well, right? It's called the book of Philippians. We're not in Thessalonians, we're in Philippians. But he also included the overseers and the deacons. And when he talks about the saints in Philippi, it means exactly what you think it means. Us Protestants, I guess our conception of, of saints, it means the people who were active Christians, who were holy and separated unto God. As used here, it refers to those people who have placed their faith in the person and the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation from their sins. That's who he refers to when he says the saints. They are holy because God has forgiven them of their sins and has clothed them in the righteousness of Christ based on their faith. So they are saints. You can be saints in this room. We can be saints in this room if we do the exact same thing that he's talking about here. They're now separated from their sin. Their former master was sin, but their master is now Jesus Christ. And they're slaves to Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Again, crazy language in this day and age to use that word, but it meant something back then. If you use the word slave, it meant something back then, and, and our desire is to be a slave to the, to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Every true Christian is a saint because God declares them to be so. This letter is also written to the overseers and the deacons. That means pastors and elders is all that it means. He could have used those words just as easily. Their role is to administrate, lead, and protect, and feed the flock the believers who make up the church. They are ministers of God to the congregation and they carry biblical authority to accomplish that ministry. Those are the kind of people, so he's talking to the saints and he's talking to the leadership of the church. All, all of the people in the church, from the, from the pastor to the, the, to the person who just walked in the door for the first time and, and is, has received Christ is somebody that Paul is talking to. He includes a similar greeting in all of his letters, um, and, and it's just such a, a wonderful, uh, wonderful concept of he wishes grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be upon them. That's just, that's awesome. What, what, what a great desire to have for another person. Mindy and Scott, I wish you grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. W what if we just started greeting each other though? I, I wish you grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great desire to, to have for others. What if we felt this way for each other? Can you imagine if we genuinely all felt this way and we could, we could just not just say the words but mean them to each other when we said it? The grace and peace of God be on you, Brother Tommy. The grace and peace of God be upon you. Brother Kenneth, the grace and peace of God be upon you. The grace and peace of God be upon you. Brother Arnold, the grace and peace of God be upon you. Brother David, the grace and peace of God be upon you. What if, what if we just said that and meant it? Think about it for a second. The grace and peace of God be upon I want that. I'm repeating it a bunch of times, but I want you to get the thought in your head. I want that. 
I'd love for people to tell me that. That would feel, can you imagine what it would do for us to walk into church and, and have people say those things to us and for us to, to, to believe that they meant it. It really is a desire that Christians should have for all other people, whether they are believers or not. To the unbeliever, we should desire that they get to know and experience Jesus Christ and the grace that comes through him because that will remove the guilt and the slavery of sin so that they can then have a proper relationship with their creator. They can be at peace with Jesus Christ. And to the believer, for those of us in this room, the believer, we should desire that they continue to grow in their knowledge and personal experience of God and that grace and the peace that we feel each day and it grows and it grows and, the, and we feel the effects in every aspect of our lives. What's so important here is that Paul has that desire. Paul has it. We need it. Paul has it. And what Paul has experienced himself, he desired that the people of Philippi have it as well. He desired that the people of Bentley would also have it as well. Unlike other realms of life in which we are in competition with each other to gain some limited resources, everybody knows. Here's the example that's going to everybody. Can you, do you know what it was like to go buy toilet paper in March of 2020? We were all competing for limited resources. Uh, yes, you, everybody wants their brand, you know, they, but you were desperate for toilet paper. There's no reason why we were desperate for toilet paper, but we were. And, and, and Lysol and, and, and hand sanitizer, people were buying that. There was limited numbers of those things, and everybody was trying to get more and more uh, and, and stock up, you know, get as much as you could because we, we didn't know how long this was going to last. But this grace and peace of Jesus Christ is not like that. There is no limited resource with God. Most of life, isn't that awesome? Most of life involves a pie. And the more pieces you cut it into, the smaller your piece is. Isn't that the way things are? Just, and, and it's literal with a pie too. If somebody's got your favorite pie at Christmas and they cut a large piece, you just kind of get mad. I, I was going to take some home, but now I'm going to have to eat it here, you know. But that pie is limited sometimes. And in families, we see sibling rivalry occur because they want, they want more attention from mom and dad. And the parents love their children, but it's hard to sometimes manage how to do that time with each other. And if the parents aren't careful to balance and, and teach their children to love one another, then the children are going to compete for the attention of mom and dad. In God's family, there is no competition for resources. God is unlimited. Unlimited. There is no threat to a Christian that their own relationship with God might suffer if somebody else gets a relationship with him. You don't have to worry about it. If you all, everyone in this room, I don't know how many people are sitting in here this morning, if you all after this series have the most incredible, amazing, spectacular relationship with God that you have ever had in your entire life, you will not reduce the amount of relationship I can have still with Jesus Christ. And not only that, not only can, will you not reduce the amount I have, we will all increase in joy because we're all celebrating and experiencing more of a relationship with Jesus Christ. We'll feel it. We will genuinely mean, let the grace and peace of Jesus Christ be with you. So it is well that we should desire God's grace and peace be extended to all other people. So let's talk about Paul's sources of joy. 
verses 3 and 4, Paul, not it's, we're going through 3 through 8, but let's start with 3 and 4. In verses 3 through 8, though, Paul not only expresses his thankfulness for the Philippians and his reasons for his gratitude, but he also lays a foundation for explaining the source of his joy in his circumstances. Don't forget throughout this whole thing, where is Paul writing from? He's in prison. Paul is in prison and has likely been there two plus years potentially up to four. We don't know exactly where along that road, he, but he's been in jail at least two years. I spent one night. That was bad. He's been in for two, possibly three, four years. So let's read these verses in their entirety, and then we'll come back. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing, this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Paul starts with remembering God's work in the past. He remembers what God has done for him before. In verses 3 and 4, he states that he would give thanks to God every time he would remember the Philippians. Every single time they cross his mind, thank you, God, for the Philippians. That's an example for us. When I think of the church in Bentley, thank you, God, for the church in Bentley. When, when this church crosses my mind and, and whatever I'm doing, I could be sitting in the courtroom. I could be driving down the highway. Thank you, God, for Bentley. Just thank you, God, for what you've done in the past. This is a place of safety and healing. This is a place of love and affirmation. This, thank you, God, for this place. The memory of his time with them is the force, first source of the joy that Paul expresses. Remember, he had been writing, to, or he had been actually personally with them at least three times, and he had had his co-laborers come there on other times on his behalf. So he was very familiar with the church at Philippi. It was in Philippi that he saw the Holy Spirit move on Lydia. Remember, she was the seller of purple. He saw the Holy Spirit move on Lydia so that she became the first convert to Christianity in all of Europe. Paul had had some negative experiences also in Philippi. Remember, he had been arrested. And that even led to a good thing because he, even though he was beaten with rods and thrown in jail, he had a chance to witness to the jailer. That man became a Christian and all of his household also became a Christian. So Paul has these, there was a couple of things that were bad, but think of all the good things that happened while he had been in Philippi. And as Acts 16 records, God used that situation and Paul's response about it to bring the conversion of people to Christ. All of these memories of what God had done there, as well as many others that aren't recorded, because you know there had to be more, they were a source of joy for Paul. They caused him to give thanks to God. So his first source of joy, then remembrance of God's work in the past. And, and that's, a, that's a thing we can all hold on to. We've got the, we know the milestones. We know the things that remove not the ancient landmark. Remember the things that God has done in the past. The first joy results in the second source of joy because Paul offers prayer with joy on their behalf. He remembers them, that gives him joy, and then he begins to pray for them, and this gives him joy. Prayer is the proper response of the Christian when they remember others, especially those that we are close to emotionally. It ought to be really easy for us to pray for the other people in this room. 
for us to pray for our family. We need to pray for the whole world. We need to pray for the salvation of everybody in Grant Parish, Rapids, Louisiana, everywhere. But it's real easy, isn't it, for us to pray for the people we are emotionally attached to. When we got the news about Brother John, it was, it was a gut punch for everyone in this room. It was easy for us to go to the throne of grace. And that's Paul has got this exact same thing. He knows these people in Philippi. And so when he thinks of them, he immediately begins to pray for them. All of us have enough ego that we, you write me a little note or send me a text or, or say something on Facebook that you, you liked what I, I said or you, you enjoyed my preaching. Man, it, it makes me feel good. It does. We like to hear that somebody is thinking about us. And, and it's, it is a nice sentiment and I appreciate it. But I would prefer that that thought be followed up with prayer. It's great that you think that, but man, the best thing for me is to know that you're also praying for me. Consider if you had an IRS agent think about you. And you got a little card that said, hey, I'm thinking about you. <laughs> Signed IRS agent. That would scare you. But what if the next little letter said, I think you made a mistake and we owe you money. Boy, wouldn't that be? Now, that never is going to happen. <laughs> Just going to go ahead and tell you. But what if it did? Or what if you had a serious medical condition and you just get a little note from your doctor? Hey, I'm thinking about you. Oh, shoot. What, what does that mean? What, what's going to happen here? It's, it's, it's nice that he's thinking about me, but if it was also followed by, you know, I think I found a way we can, we can work on your condition. Yeah. Or I've, I've found a, a, some medical book or some new drug, something that says, hey, this might work for your condition. That would be awesome. That's what it is following up with prayer. Yeah. My thoughts followed by my prayers. It's the same exact thing. We can bring a person before God. We can take them in prayer before God. We can do this positive thing called prayer, regardless of how bad the situation is, and we can pray. Paul thought of the Philippians, and it resulted in him praying on their behalf. Paul found joy in being, he's in prison. If somebody in Philippi said, hey, Paul, I need to borrow 20 bucks. Hey, Paul, I'm moving tomorrow. Can you come help me move? He can't do those things. He can't do, Paul, we're having a big fundraiser for missions. Can you come cook? He can't do, he's in jail. But what he was able to find joy in was that he was able to touch the throne of God on their behalf. He could do something for them, even from prison. And I know sometimes we feel the same way. We want to help somebody, but there's literally nothing I can do. You can pray. You can reach the throne of God. It is a positive thing that you can do for the people that you're, that Jesus really is putting those people on our hearts, honestly. But the, he brings it to our remembrance, the good times we've had with them, the, 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 the love that we have for them, the emotion that we feel for them. And then we can do something with that feeling and we can pray. That's what we can do. The second source of joy then is to be able to pray. Paul gives another reason for his thankfulness in the next five, some three more reasons in his next five verses participation in the gospel. This is, this is awesome because this really starts to get where, kind of speaking to the whole church. The Philippians had participated in the gospel, and I'm going to explain what that means. In verse 5, Paul specifically states that part of the reason for his thankfulness and joy when he thought about the Philippians was because of their participation with him in the gospel from the first day they met until the present. The word for participation here is most commonly tra translated as fellowship. 
He had fellowship. It speaks of sharing something in common. Christians are in communion. I'm using that word broadly, not the act of taking communion, but in the sense of us, our fellowship together. Christians are in communion with one another because we share the common, the same common Lord. We share the same faith, we share the same baptism, we share the same hope, we share the same spirit, we share the same God and Father who makes us all a part of his body. All of us in this room, as a church in Bentley, all of us in this room, but also the body of believers all around the world. Christians are in fellowship with each other, not only because of our common belief and our relationships, but also because we have, we, 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 we are able to use our common gifts, our, I mean our individual gifts, to minister to each other in common. Some of you have gifts that I don't have. I may have gifts that you don't have, but we all come together and we minister to one another with our various gifts. The word participation is also used for the practical sharing of physical necessities, including money with one another. Sister Michael, you can put my cash app on the screen and my, my Venmo. Just uh, make sure the Facebook people can see it too. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But Paul wasn't. Paul was not kidding when he said that. He had even received contributions from the Philippians. He had not only received financial things from the Philippians, but there was a time where Jerusalem was, the, the Christians in Jerusalem were suffering. The, 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 the Christians in Jerusalem were persecuted by the Jews and the Romans, and they were poor, and there was people starving. And he asked the churches in Greece to send money to Jerusalem. And the church at Philippi was one of the first to answer the call. They sent money to help them. They advanced the kingdom. They were advancing the kingdom. They had participated in Paul's ministry in all these, all these ways since the first time they had met him. And Paul loved that and he remembered that. And he comments in Philippians 4 and 15 and 16 about how quickly the Philippian believers responded to the gospel and they shared in Paul's ministry even though they were new believers. How awesome is that? Their hearts must have been so towards God. Their hearts were just, just leaping for God. And you yourselves know, do know, Philippians, that at the, at the preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. They took care of Paul. And Paul loved them and he remembered them. Acts 17 and 1 records that after Paul had left Philippi, he traveled through Macedonia and finally came to Thessalonica. This is only a few days or a few weeks at most after he left Philippi, yet they're already seeking him out. How can we help you? What can we do to advance the kingdom? They wanted to participate in the kingdom. They wanted to be a part of the kingdom of God. And Paul remembers their generosity in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in the great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty, they were poor. They were a poor church. Their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. They were poor, but they gave liberally. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Their generosity even went beyond monetary gifts. They shared of themselves. 
they also gave. They sent one of their own. They sent a man called Epaphroditus to Paul to be his helper, his co-laborer. Epaphroditus risked his own life and almost lost his own life trying to go help Paul. Paul says that it was specifically their participation, their fellowship, and their communion with him that he had in view when he said these things about them. Their participation in the gospel would not only include all that I said about, but sharing the common beliefs and and actions and all that kind of stuff, but also sharing in the same work and the consequences of that work. They were co-laborers with Paul through their material gifts to support him and sending their their men to help be his assistant. But they were also laboring in the same task. They were proclaiming the gospel. They were participating because they were also proclaiming the gospel themselves in their own area. And anybody that was passing through Philippi got to know that there was a church in Philippi. There's a church in Bentley. We're going to pass the gospel. We're going to share the gospel with everybody who comes by. We can add to this in the preaching of the gospel. They would probably have been persecuted. We know that persecution was happening to the early church. So they would have taken part in that fellowship of the suffering of Jesus Christ. Finding committed co-laborers is a source of joy to any Christian. It is awesome when you have to do something around here. Let's say you've been put in charge of moving all the tables. It's awesome to find somebody who's willing to come help you. Have you ever tried to move all the tables by yourself? That's hard. But when you get somebody who'll come along, and that's something simple and small, but when we come alongside each other and become co-laborers with Christ, there's something special about it. Finding committed co-laborers is a source of joy for any Christian. Paul and the Philippians had joy in each other because they were fellow participants in the work of the gospel. Even when they would suffer for the cause of Christ, their communion, their fellowship together would be an encouragement in the midst of hardship. And that same joy of fellowship is is available today. It's available for any Christian in this room. It's available for us as well. And Jesus Christ will use our spiritual gifts, whatever your gift is, and you all have one. Everyone in this room has a spiritual gift. We all have one and we're all parts of the body and we all have to give our gifts for the church to function to its absolute best purposes. For us to become a church that can do all the things that God has called us to, all of the members of the body must be present. Next, he talks about in verse 6, our confidence in God. That's the next source, source of joy. There is joy in looking forward to the future when you know what the outcome will be. Paul was thankful and glad when he thought about the Philippian believers because he knew that God would complete in them the good work that he had started. I'm going to expand at the the very end, kind of exhort for a minute on this confidence in God. But for the moment, I want us to focus on how this confidence was a source of joy for Paul. The good work that God was doing in the Philippian Christians began when the gospel was proclaimed. When it was just proclaimed to them is when it began. And praise God, it's going to continue until the last day. That work doesn't end in us. There's always, he's always working to bring that into our lives. It's important to stress here also that it is the work of God. The gospel message at its core and in its purest form is about the grace of God being extended to man through the person of Christ Jesus so that we could be redeemed and redeemed and restored to a proper relationship with God. That's the gospel. That's the whole of the gospel. The gospel is about God. 
not man. He did all the work. We're the beneficiary of all the work, but he did all the work. We must be careful to make sure it remains this way. The gospel message has been twisted in, our, in this present generation to become focused on man instead of God. Men begin to judge God based on their own beliefs instead of changing their beliefs because they are in love with God. The gospel is often commonly presented in America as the good news that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That is not untrue. I'm not trying to knock what anybody believes. It is true. The idea of a wonderful life is not usually defined except for the fact that you get to go to heaven instead of hell. And the hearer is allowed to believe this wonderful life however he defines it. Some carry on about things the Bible does not promise, such as if you will believe in Jesus, then he's going to provide for your desires. He's going to keep you in good health. He's going to give you peace and happiness. All the person has to do is decide if they will believe in Jesus or not. Such a gospel is marketed. And I'm using that word on purpose. The gospel is marketed to highlight all the good points that that the person will get should they choose the Jesus brand. But what is the rest of the package deal? The Christian life is a wonderful life. There is none better. There is no better life. But I want to be real honest with you because I try to always be real honest in here. Only God gets to define what the wonderful life is. It's his definition. If you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then he does promise to meet your needs. But there is no promise to meet your wants or your fleshly desires. That is not the promise of God. The Holy Spirit will be present to comfort you in any situation. But there is no promise that your life will be full of good things and happiness. You might not have good health. That is not what we normally hear preached. But it is absolutely biblical what I'm telling you. We want to be healthy and wealthy in the here and now. God wants us to be with him eternally. That's what's important to God is what happens eternally. We think about down here and I want, oh, I want this and I want that. I want a new boat. I want a new car. God's like, hold on a second. I'm worried about your eternal destination. This amount of time that we spend down here, it's so little compared to eternity. And and all God's saying is, trust me, I will bring you to that place of eternity. Paul said that he... He tells us in, in, uh, in, in Corinthians 12 and 7 that he had a thorn in the flesh and he asked God to take it away three times. God told him instead that my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul had something wrong in his body. Something that he struggled with. His Paul. Saint Paul. Not Bob. Not just the the guy over here who's preaching, you know, in in some crazy city. Paul had a thorn in his flesh and he prayed that God would remove it three times. And God said, nope, my grace is sufficient for you. If God's grace is sufficient for Paul, it's sufficient for us as well. Whatever place we find ourselves, whatever condition we are in, be content therein. Jesus warned us that in this world we would have tribulation, but to be of good cheer because he had overcome the world already. Paul stated it different, a little bit uh, more directly, and he said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Sorry to mess up your theology on a Sunday morning here in the middle of America. 
I mean, our sheriff's car is having God we trust. It's kind of hard for us to even contemplate that we might ever be persecuted. But Paul said, if you follow Jesus Christ, you will be persecuted. If you don't have the joy that we're going to be talking about, you will find that persecution to be stifling. And you may fall away because you don't understand where your source of joy is. We plan our way, but God directs our steps. It is a wonderful life because it fulfills our purpose of existence and it changes us into the image of Christ. It's a wonderful life, even though we do not get whatever lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or pride of life that that object we think would make us happy. Thank God we don't always get what we want because I know sin, we've heard the story, sin, it lasts for a season and the wages of sin is death. God knows this and we keep forgetting it. Paul was confident that God would perfect or complete his work in them because he understood the gospel message. It is God-centered, not man-centered. God will accomplish his will through man and he will conform the true Christian to the image of Jesus Christ. Romans 8 and 29. Stop trying to make God look like you. The godly man will rejoice in that truth for his desire and goal is to see God glorified not me. Those who are ungodly are just merely religious. They're going to resent that message because their goal is themselves and not God. Paul was also confident because he understood that salvation is always the work of God and nothing that we can do. The gospel call is a genuine call to all the world that whosoever will hear the word of Jesus Christ and believe on him will be given eternal life. Whosoever will Many take that to mean that salvation is left to the decision of us. He'll be saved if he chooses to believe in Jesus Christ and lost if he doesn't. But there's a problem here. Salvation is not left to the decision of man because man doesn't really have free will. Let me explain because no one's amen in. Lots of times decisions that are made, they're made for us and we don't get to make them ourselves. We don't always have free will. My, my pocketbook constrains some of my decisions. Does yours? If it doesn't, let's talk later. Man then has limited will, even in matters of salvation. I got some scripture for it. The unsaved are incapable of choosing God on their own, for their minds are blinded by the God of this age. 2 Corinthians 4 and 4. And they do not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because those things are only spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2 and 14. Without God's direct intervention, man will not choose Jesus Christ. We are in sin before God finds us. He finds us in the pit. We weren't in the pit looking for him. We weren't looking for him. He found us in the pit. And then salvation occurs because God shows forth his grace. He has commanded all men everywhere to repent from their sins and turn to him. God is patient and he is kind with sinful man. Thank you, God, for your patience and your kindness. And it leads me to repentance. That's my natural reaction. My natural reaction when I've been shown such mercy and grace is to repent before him. But man has no hope without God's intervention. Jesus himself said it in John 6 and 44. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So if you think you found Jesus on your own, you didn't. 
He found you before you ever walked in the back of a church. Jesus said in 14, uh, John 14 and 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment upon a man and quicken or make alive this dead spirit and bring it back to life. We believe, as did the apostles, that we are saved through the grace of Jesus Christ. Acts 15 and 11 and Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 states it even better. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest none should boast. Since our salvation from sin is the gracious work of God in our lives, then he's the one responsible both for the salvation and for keeping you in it. Jesus told us in John 6 and 39, 10, 28 and 29, that no one can snatch us out of his hands. Those that belong to him cannot be taken from his hands and he loses none of those that are given to him. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. If God saves you, you cannot lose that salvation through any work of of Satan or this world. Only your conscious decision to walk away will ever be the thing that will deprive you of it. And if you keep your eyes fixed on him, oh, if you keep your eyes fixed on him, God will not only save you, but he's going to complete the work in you that he started. And through sanctification, he's going to conform you into his image. We're all in that process at the present. Paul is thankful for that process. Paul also mentions in 7 and 8 his heart for the Philippian believers. One more source, one last source of Paul's thankfulness and joy was from his own love and affection. He says in verse 7 that they were in his heart. Paul specifically relates this is the response to their being partakers of grace with him. Even though he's in prison, they still love on him. They're still writing. They still care. They're still praying. Partakers here, is, it's an even more intensive form of the word participation we used earlier. It's stronger. Paul viewed them as someone who were sharing in both his imprisonment and his ministry. Because they were praying for him and they loved him and they cared for him, he considered them a part of his imprisonment. They were there with him. He felt their strength through God. They were partners with Paul in every way they could be. And it resulted in Paul having a deep affection for them. That affection is expressed in him telling them in verse 8 of his longing. He wished to be with them. He wanted to speak to them. But even here, and this is so important, his joy was not founded in himself, but in his relationship with Jesus Christ. His affection for them was the love of Jesus Christ flowing out of him to them. It was a godly given love. It may not be romantic to walk up to your girlfriend or your wife and say, I love you because God told me to love you. I bet that's been tried at some Bible colleges. I bet that's been tried before. But it sure is a lot more safe and secure, isn't it? If you love someone because of some particular attribute about them, what happens when that attribute changes? If you love them because of your own emotions, what happens when the emotions change? If it is God loving someone through you, however, then it won't change because God doesn't change. There's a marriage seminar in there somewhere. That's another day. There's also a church unity seminar in there somewhere, but that's another day. The joy for the giver of the love and the receiver of the love is actually increased because it's placed there by God. Paul has now expressed five reasons that he was thankful and joyful for his remembrance of the the Philippians. But what I want to do 
is I want to come back because all of these are, should be sources for our own joy and thankfulness. One thing that Paul never mentions here, but the premise is all over it, is it, it, to come to church. Be a part of a body of believers. Paul doesn't say in these passages, thou shalt attend church, but it's impossible to be a co-laborer alone. To be a co-laborer, you've got to have some people together who you're laboring with. Everything that Paul says leads me to believe that he's saying be a part of a church. That part was free. I want to close. I want to increase your confidence in God this morning. I want to, I want to exhort you and, and help increase your confidence in God. Before we end this morning, I want to go back to verse 6. And I really want us to grasp what it is that Paul is saying in the next three minutes. Having a confidence in God is actually a foundation of all of Paul's sources of joy. He's got a foundation of confidence in God. If there's no confidence in God, then whatever joy we have is really happiness. For our immediate circumstances, whatever those may be, it's not an abiding joy that will continue in the teeth of danger. Paul was not afraid of the future for either himself or for the Philippian believers. And remember that Paul is in prison as he says this, knowing there's a possibility he may die, but he is not afraid. Paul was confident in God and his promises. Paul clearly understood that number one, and there's two things I want you to get today. Number one, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And Paul also understood, number two, that he existed for the purpose of God's glory. If we ever get those two things, you will never struggle in your Christian life again. I promise you, you will never struggle in your Christian life. With Paul's confidence and ability to be joyful in every situation, it's all dependent on those two facts. And our confidence and our joy will be dependent on realizing those two things ourselves. Paul had no problem with God's sovereignty. He believed in what Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, in which God says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient things that, has, has, that have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established. I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. God is saying, I literally run the show. It's mine. It's my show. I run the show and I will take care of you. And Paul took that scripture as gospel. Paul described it this way in Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. His will makes every, the earth spins in its orbit because it's God's will. The sun burns because it is God's will. That is God's sovereignty. And it is simply a biblical truth. You've got to decide whether you accept it or not. You have to decide this morning, do you accept that God is sovereign? But for those who reject this truth, they will never have confidence in the future because they're not willing to let God control that future. The second factor of Paul's confidence and joy is in living for the purpose of God's glory. This one is hard for me. I get that God's sovereign. I have no trouble accepting that he flung the worlds into existence. But this one is hard for me. A person who wants to live for themselves cannot have any confidence in God. 
It is obvious in Scripture over and over again by the lives of all the godly people in the Bible. We see this from Abel and Noah and Moses and the prophets, Jesus and the apostles. Living a godly life is going to result in persecution by those who are evil. You will be persecuted. A self-centered person will not and cannot take joy in that. You are unable to. You will not be able to. Only in understanding and living for God's glory can there be any positive purpose for the suffering. The only positive purpose for the suffering is understanding I'm doing it for Jesus Christ. I must understand my purpose is bigger than me. Our ability to be joyful will be restricted by those two factors. If you want to be able to be joyful in any circumstance, you must come to grips with those truths and have confidence in them. Here's something you don't hear in evangelical churches enough. God is sovereign and the purpose of your existence is to bring him glory. You do not exist so that you can get some degrees or you can make a bunch of money or you can retire early. That's not why you exist. You exist for his glory. That's all. That's the only reason. We don't exist to make money. We don't exist. We don't even exist to raise our children. We exist for his glory. He will be glorified. He will be glorified. He who began a good work in you. I'm pointing at everybody in the room right now. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Listen to what we're going into. Dig deep in Philippians. Dig into this gospel. Dig into this truth. Fall in love with the word of God. Let it form you. And remember those last two things. God is sovereign and we exist for his purpose. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Amen. I'm done. Do y'all want to sing or you want me to pray? It's late. I I kept y'all two minutes late. I'm sorry. Let's just, let's stand. I'm just going to pray for us because I've kept you late. Father, we love you so much. You are awesome. You are wonderful and you are glorious. You have created us because, and you love us. You, you, we are the, 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 your prized possession. But God, because you have made us and you have created us in that way, we are designed to serve you. We are designed to give you glory. Let us look up at you as the author and the finisher of all of our faith. Let us put our trust in you, God. Let us follow your plan and you will be glorified in everything that we do. We will find that joy and we will find that peace no matter the circumstance, God. I pray a blessing on this group of people, God. Open our minds to receive this truth, God. Let your spirit walk down the aisle. Let it walk past each pew, God. And let it speak into the hearts of every one of us, God. We pray this today in Jesus' name.